Well, thank you so much, Graham, for, for taking the time to, to be with me today. Uh, when I saw uh, what you were doing, what you and the team are, are, are doing, I got super excited and, and, and just, I love when people are just doing really creative things. And especially within sort of the community and real estate, which is, I think, going through, we were talking before, a little bit of a, a disruption at this moment in time, but I think a good disruption. With, with a ton of things going on in this space, but I, I want to start with a little bit of your journey and how do you get even into a space where you're just innovating yeah. and innovating properties for, for community good. And so let's just start, go far back as you want, but let's get your journey first before we dig into yeah. some other aspects. Hey, Grant, thanks so much for the privilege of being with you guys today. And I've been really enjoying the podcast and uh, learning from other conversations you guys have been weaving in here. So for me, the journey started in Canada where I was born, just outside of Toronto. And uh, we were joking a little bit about vitamin D, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, et ethnically, I'm half Scottish, half Indian. It's given me a multicultural approach to mm -hmm. life. And I had the privilege of eventually going and studying in the UK at a, a place called the London School of Economics, yeah. where I studied diplomatic history. And it was during that time, although I'd grown up in the church, I'd kind of stepped away from it. Mm -hmm. But it was it was during grad school that I started exploring my faith again, like many people do at that kind of stage of life. And what I found in England is they were in this just wave of closing of churches thousands of churches. So to me, this was fascinating. How could I be, explore my faith? Yet the faith that I was part of was selling all of its property. So that's how I originally came into this, uh, this sector. And it was due to, due to what? What was sort of the, the reason that there was such a church sell-off, so to speak? So a lot of the European uh, church denominations, which have a separate stream, right, than the kind of Orthodox Eastern stream and, and other church streams that maybe have sprung up in places like China or India or South America, but the European streams, which are very familiar to a lot of North Americans, they're really based on obligation, right? You're born a Lutheran, you're born mm -hmm. a Methodist, you're born a Catholic, and that's what you do. And that actually worked pretty well up until the Second World War. But, but after that point, people started saying, I think I'd like to choose my own set of beliefs. Sure. And that actually, although we're so used to that, that was a relatively new idea. Yeah. And so when, when there was a time when, you know, once you're part of a religious community, you attended that church. Well, then, of course, those churches all built a lot of properties, right? And if you look at North America, you have the explosion of the European, the reformation of the church, which is, by the way, a property rebellion, right, against the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church owned all the church buildings. The, the reformers with Martin Luther, John Calvin, these kind of guys, they said, look, we, we want to run these churches ourselves. And they, they, there are a whole bunch of other factors that went into this European revolution, but uh, European reformation. But what happened at the same time is they said, you know what? Not only can we leave the Catholic church, we can actually just leave Europe. <laughs> Let's get on a boat, right? Let's get ourselves a whole, a whole new continent. And so you see, you now start seeing European colonization of North America. Of course, you have massive First Nations, indigenous peoples issue with even starting to describe that. But now if you're part of a religious community, you buy a piece of land, you build yourself a building. So mm -hmm. what's happened is that as people start saying, I'm not part of that big community mm -hmm. out of obligation, I'm part of it because of choice. We've now got a surplus of properties. We also like, I, 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 I'd be willing to take a bet grant that you know, if, if you had a three or maybe, I don't even know if you do, maybe you have a three, four, 5,000 square foot house. If you did, I bet when you go on holiday for a month, you'd rent it out. Mm. But try that with your parents. Your parents would not rent it out. They close it. They get somebody to come point. watch the house. Great point. Right? 
So we have an expectation of the use of urban land, the mm. changing religious landscape. And the result is we have all of these properties that are surplus. We got to figure out what to do with them. Beautiful properties, though, which is, I think, an advantage for, for people trying to, like you and, and your team and organization, looking at this is how we can make this a beacon for neighborhoods and, and communities, right? I That's mean, right. There, there's something there that can be created that I think everybody can be involved with. And I think historically, it, it might not have been as open to everybody within the community as it could be, right? Maybe for religious reasons or even race region reasons, whatever it may be. Although a community, although a church can be very communal in a community, it could also be very segregated. That's right. There's different churches around the world for different religions and, and different everything, right? It's, but I, I think there's an opportunity here where you can actually build something that actually takes in everybody and, you know, breeds life in, the, in a certain community. So like, what is this idea? And like, how, how does it work? And what does it mean by turning churches into community hubs for good? What, is that, what does that actually mean right. look like? Well, just even to go back over some of the things you just said there, Grant, there's so much richness in how you cue that up. Because if you look at a new property development in an American suburb these days, mm-hmm. okay, if you're a property developer, you buy a couple of hundred acres and you come up with a plan to build a couple of hundred, couple of thousand houses, and you will want to put a set of amenities in the middle of that development, right? Mm-hmm. You'll have a Walgreens and a, some kind of pasta restaurant and a pizza joint and mm-hmm. you know, somewhere to get your hair cut and a bank teller, you know, automatic t- uh, bank machine. The amenities back in the day if you were a German migrant mm. to the American Midwest is a Lutheran church, right? Mm-hmm. So you built that church so that people would build their houses around it. So the issues of race and privilege and land privilege that came with this colonizing wave are still here today. When you talk about beautiful buildings, I can tell you that the most beautiful buildings are the whitest buildings in any North American city. The black churches are the poor little ones in the poor neighborhoods. And actually, it's a huge issue of celebrating black heritage when the building itself mm. To, mm. Be, to be remembered or held onto is not quite as beautiful mm. as that big Methodist or big Catholic one with mm-hmm. the giant steeple, right? right. So when I, when I listened to Bobby Turner from... Uh, from Turner Impact Capital on the podcast, I thought I, I get really excited because you see so many of the folks who have the old wealth of mm-hmm. North America yeah. and they want to see it deployed. Actually, we can deploy that wealth in a way that helps do this redistribution, not in a Robin Hood steal from the rich, give to the poor, but in a, a genuinely thoughtful restructuring of community spaces. So let me give you an example. Yep. If you destroy a church that a bunch of like, they just think of a typical church, okay? Yeah. You got an AA group meeting in there on a Wednesday sure. afternoon. Yep. You've got a scout group meeting there in the evening. You've got, nobody even knows what's happening there on Sunday anymore because it's just, there's only one generation of great grandparents there now, mm-hmm. but there's stuff happening. Okay. Sure. You look at the cost that those community groups that are reaching the most vulnerable people of what they pay in rent. It's nothing. They depend on these sites. Okay. In one state in Canada, one province in the province of Ontario, the Ontario nonprofit network that represents not-for-profits for the state, the province, actually surveyed a 1,000 organizations that use church properties as their location. Okay. And all of them said the churches they're occupying are vulnerable. So what I'm saying is these groups, and if you go all the way to 
riots and gangs mm -hmm. and terrorism and really bad stuff that happens, guess where it starts? It starts from community disintegration. Mm. So those little groups that don't pay anything in rent, those are the ones pulling together the most broken people. So that's our vision is to say, instead of there being a faith community and then all you these hangers on groups, we're saying, hold on, those groups are the, those groups in a sense are more important. Mm -hmm. The faith groups could become the secondary groups. And that's how we're talking about community hubs. And by the way, there's a difference between a community hub and a community center. Okay. Mm -hmm. Community center, mm -hmm. you kind of have a picture of turning up, you get a styrofoam cup of coffee with some terrible coffee, right? And and you're you're in line with some people that you don't want to be in the lineup yep. for. Maybe it's a public pool or something. You're thinking, I don't really want to be here. This yeah. is not a nice place to be. A community hub is a place where the main clients or the main tenants are those organizations that are bringing change. Mm -hmm. So they could be bringing change to, let's bring the Rotary Club in there, or let's bring all the Turner Impact Capital could mm -hmm. be running an event there, mm -hmm. as could Alcoholics Anonymous. And that mixity mm. on the ground is something that we also believe is a key to getting community hubs really working well for change. Is there an example that you could give like a real world example of this church was in, you know, this state of being and within this period of time, it became this and now it does this for the surrounding area. Yeah. Like, is there just a case study that? Absolutely. I mean, I can give you some case studies in the U.S. One of my favorite is the Judson Center in New York City All right. run by my friend Donna Scaper. And, you know, it's just a little church in the center of New York City, and they have transformed that place. And, and Donna is, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the things you find when you see how these things run, mm -hmm. you find people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and they're willing to fight their corner. Mm. And Donna is somebody, she's fought developers, she's fought municipal folks, she's fought foundation people, and they love her at the end. That's a good way of fighting, <laughs> right? When you can yeah. fight and people love you at the end, but boy, that's a real challenge. But Donna is an amazing leader and she's turned that place. They're, they're bringing in before the pandemic, they were bringing in close to a million dollars a year in revenue. Now at that kind of revenue level, you can actually run significant things in an old heritage building. And that goes back to what you're talking about, the big iconic building mm. with the steeple in the center of place, right? And so they call it the Judson Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts. Okay. okay. That's how they that's how they do their thing. In our pilot site in Montreal, we have a lot of fun. It's called St. Jack's. Mm -hmm. And Jack's, it used to be called St. James the Apostle Anglican Church. And by the way, I'm also an Anglican minister, which is an Episcopal church minister. And uh, so that's a lot of fun. But in our <laughs> place, we thought, well, St. James the Apostle Anglican Church, that, that sounds very churchy. Let's yeah. shorten the name down. Let's call it St. Jack's. Okay. And we're in a French-speaking part of town uh, of, the, of Canada. So James means Jacques. Okay. Mm. So St. Jacques. Saint-Jacques-Lapotte, Église Anglicaine de Saint-Jacques-Lapotte. It's like, no, it's not going to work. So we, we, we created a name which is half English, half French, St. Jacques. Okay, J -A -X. Mm -hmm. So people come in, they're like, is this a church still? It, 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 what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then one of the craziest things is Montreal, where I live, is also the, the home of Cirque du Soleil which is one of the most oh, wow. famous circus oh, yeah. companies in the world, yeah. right? We have 10,000 employees of Silk Soleil. It's changed ownership and structure now. But so we, we had this circus company came to us and they founded a circus company called Great Le idea. Monastère, mm. right? Which means the monastery. And they came to us. They're like, we have a vision for using all these empty churches. What do you think? I'm like, um, we got a vision for using empty churches. <laughs> Come on, this is a match made in heaven, right? And so they came. And they now run, I, I think we should put some links in the, uh, in the podcast here so people right, can see this, well. right? Yeah. It, it, it is, is we run 40 circus shows per year out of the big, vaulted, beautiful wood ceiling. 
Makes okay. so much sense. We, we yeah. got some engineers in there and they just hang people from the top of that ceiling. And you look at that, like what a wasted space, right? You do a communion service, you're only at six feet above the ground. We got this 40, 50 foot ceiling. The circus guys are using like, mm -hmm. <laughs> the totally. other four fifths of our building hasn't been used for 150 years. It's awesome. So we also have big refugee charity and we have a total of over 50 groups share that building. Wow. Throughout the year, we're at around half a million dollars in revenue. And that is enough to keep the building going and, and share it out. Now, it's not enough to pay for all of the heritage renovations, which is, we should talk about that a bit more about the, sure. the true cost of this stuff. But, you know, that's the vision. Let's get these groups in there, sharing the space, see it come alive. Uh, I'm a little ignorant to it, but I always feel like sometimes when, when properties are designated a certain way, you cannot rehab them, right? Or something like that. Is that is that what yeah. you mean by it's so cost heavy is because you have to do certain things. Yeah. You can't just be creative in what you, how yes. you rehab them. Let's unpack that a little bit, right? So when we talk about heritage buildings, you could talk about a lowercase heritage building, like it's an old building, right? it's a heritage building or a capital H heritage building when you have some heritage amenity society, okay? So it could mm. be like the Brooklyn Heritage Society or the mm -hmm. whatever, right? They've designated the building. Now, those groups can designate all they want, but it only comes home to roost when the municipality is looking at a change in zoning or a building right. permit or something of that nature. Okay, The municipality will usually promise to consult the heritage amenity societies on what they think. Now, mm -hmm. in general, heritage buildings, there's a big deal about touching the outside and less of a big deal about touching the inside. Now, okay. there are some buildings which are qualified in such a way that you, you, you kind of make it pretend like you can't touch anything. However, this is the argument that community activists need to make is to say, first of all, these buildings were built for a purpose mm -hmm. of building community at the time, right? When the amenity of the time was not an automatic drive-through bank machine, it was a Lutheran church, right. right? And they had a specific purpose. You have to make the heritage argument and say, this is what we need this building to do today, right? Okay, right. The second thing is get that inside working. And our number one tool is take out those bloody pews, okay? Pews, pews are of Satan. You can quote me on that. Uh, pews are not a good thing. In, in really tough churches like the Episcopal Church, the one that I come from, people used to pay rent for pews and you could rent the more expensive pews near the front of the church if you're rich. And if you're poor, you had to sit at the back. Okay? Interesting. Pews are not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's a kind of moralizing of, of the issue of pews, which I'm happy to stand behind. But as of today, you want to make that beautiful space open for as many activities as you can, right? Imagine that I say to you, hey, come to my house, man. I'd love to have you over, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I'm so glad that you're coming to my house for dinner. And then when you get to my house, I put you in the basement. I'm like, hey, man, let's hang out. Let's have a great conversation in my basement. <laughs> and you're looking in my big dining room. You're like, well, I thought this guy wanted to invite me over for dinner. How come he doesn't set the table in the dining room? Like, who does he set the table in the dining room? This is how this is how vulnerable people feel when they get invited to a big, beautiful heritage church, mm. and they are told you got to go to the basement. Okay, it is, it is this is why right, we believe right. take out the pews, come to the front, come to the big place. You yep. are the most cherished guest, mm. even if you're there to run a circus performance. Okay, right? No, I think it, it's the description of everything <laughs> you said because, like, you, you do see whether it's an AA meeting. Right, people maybe at their 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 lowest point in their life. Right, you almost get even sentence worse, as you said. You you go to a basement and you go to you know it's probably a dark room with no lights or something like that. And it's like part of our ability to heal is to feel good about ourselves, like emotionally. And we were talking before we came on. You're I'm in Amsterdam and and, and you're in Montreal, but we we have beautiful weather today, right? Like it it does something to 
us internally, I feel. And if a person that's going to, to try to change their life or do some of the best work in their life, if they're working for an organization that's out of there, it matters where you're at trying to do this stuff. That's right. You know, it, it, it right. matters. The design matters. The lighting matters. These things have the ability, you know, as simple as it may sound, but that can transform someone, someone's life, or at least it gets them to go to the next meeting because, hey, I'd rather be here than at my house because this place is beautiful. It's nice. I feel welcomed here right? It gets them a sense of, of a place to go that is, is better than they have when they leave, right? I don't know. There's just simple That's things exactly about right. it. You know, I, I really believe that that also, I mean, we haven't talked too much about how the church people feel about this, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a church person, sure. but I'll tell you what, uh, uh, the church people, and depending on where you go in the world, this will mean something different, right? But a lot of church people will say, where are the younger people? Where are the entrepreneurs? Where are the world changers? How come we used to have all those people in the church to have the police, you know, the police chief used to preach a sermon and the, and the, and the director of the hospital used to do why, How come the director of the hospital will not speak in this church anymore? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you why. Because there's so much controversy around yep. faith communities. Yep. That person leading a hospital has to be incredibly careful. So yep. they just rather steer clear. Yep. So I would say that all those people you just mentioned who want to create what the world is going to become in a beautiful place, in fact, bringing them back into the doors of a church is directly in line with the vision and values of the church, even if, which is what we're suggesting they do, they take a backseat, including even handing over ownership of the building to the local community. And that's where we turn back to the impact finance conversation. Yep. Where, if you follow where I'm going here, somebody like Bobby Turner, okay, this guy told his story about his father making him go and mm. and glue shoes together next yep. to two Spanish-speaking guys who did not have any other option, okay? That's what his father wanted him to learn. A guy like that who's become very wealthy and now he's turned his wealth into the impact finance. This kind of guy, okay, is very disenchanted with the way the church has handled their wealth. Now, I don't know Bobby's faith background, sure. but let's just talk about him as a, you know what I mean? Somebody who's, yep. I, you know, when I was talking about Donna, somebody who's willing to roll up their yeah, sleeves, get totally. stuff done, have yep. a fight and people still love them. Yep. Those people are not happy with the way that faith communities have managed their wealth. And this is why I think the impact finance conversation is a healing for bringing that wealth back to stewarding the way these places serve their their local community. We'll talk about talk about exactly what that means, right? And as far as ownership yeah. of the churches, like who funds them? Does the government own these churches, right? Or is it still owned by a diocese or, or whatever it might be? Like yeah. just take us through, I guess, the whole roadmap of one of, of a church in a neighborhood. In sure. A- Sure. So, so just for anybody who's kind of like, hey, I think I remember this from Sunday school, or I, or I didn't go to Sunday school. You've got three main branches of the Christian Church, right? You've got Eastern Orthodox, you've got uh, Catholic, which is Roman Catholic, and then you've got all the uh, Protestant churches, which are the churches of the Reformation. So churches like Methodist, uh, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist. These are all Reformed churches, okay, and they are generally run independently, but with some regional governance. Catholic churches are generally run more by regional governance, but the local church still has some control. And you do, of course, have Orthodox churches in the U.S. as well. In all cases, you have a mix of ownership structure between the local church, which is usually a separate registered charity or 501c3 in the U.S., 
yep. and its region. You have a mix. Generally, in North America, churches are not owned by the government. The only places where churches are owned by the government, Christian churches, largely speaking, is in certain parts of Western Europe, particularly Germany, Denmark, Sweden, those kind of places. In places like England, they're not owned by the government, but there's a quasi-government relationship between the church and uh, the state. So bishops actually sit in the House of Lords, for instance, in England. But in general, you've got a local congregation that makes a decision. Okay. Now let's talk about impact finance. Let's imagine that you are let, let's imagine that you are a wealthy business person and you've made a billion dollars. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now you say, I'm going to give, I'm going to take 10% of that, put it into a charitable foundation. So that's a hundred million dollars. And I'm going to hire a staff person to run my charitable endowment. And every year they're going to give away three or 4% of the total overall value of the foundation. So now the staff person I hired is going to contract out an investment manager. And guess where, guess, guess mm. how the investment manager is going to invest. They're going to invest, like they're going to hire the best shark attack yep. fund manager they can find. And they'll even be proud of this. This guy really made some good deals. Yeah. So now when we give away the three or 4%, guess what? We actually grew by 10%. So even after having given away three or four, we've still grown by four or 5%. Here's where impact finance, I believe, is going to change in the area of social purpose real estate. Is that the 100 million that just grew to 110 and we gave away five, it's now 105 million. We need to change the way those funds are invested. And I'll tell you who's talking about stuff like that. It's people like Bobby Turner. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're talking about this. This isn't being forced on them by government, but I'll tell you in the U S new president there, and he's pushing on this kind of stuff, right? There's a new talk of infrastructure and social infrastructure, and he wants it all to, to change. We're going to see what happens with that. Right. In the area of the large granting foundations, they're all talking about the United Nations sustainable development goals. Okay. Mm -hmm. How could those holdings? So here's where I'm going with this. Imagine you own a piece of art. Okay. Why would you own a piece of art? You own it because it's a certain value today. You enjoy it. And it might be worth a certain value later on. Okay. Yep. I'm talking about the kind of piece of art that you think is going to appreciate. You sure. buy an old piece of art. You, you could easily find you spend just as much on, on what you bought it for. You could spend the same amount. You could you could buy it for fifty thousand bucks, and then you got to go to an art restorer and pay another fifty thousand bucks to have that thing fixed up. But your hope is that it's worth two hundred thousand bucks in ten years. In the case of a heritage building, like an old stone building with slate tiles, those buildings were not built on a thirty-year depreciation. They they were built. Nobody nobody was talking depreciation. They were built permanently, right? They built now. If you look at an old two hundred fifty-year-old residential building, that's that's one thing. You look at a big old stone structure building, okay, which you do find in every city in the Western world. Yep. Those buildings cost a lot more to mm. renovate, but those renovations last for a lot longer. But now, if you, so you're, you've got an expensive renovation, which means you need to amortize the investment over a longer period of time. So if you're looking to make your investment back in five or 10 years, this is not the project for you. But if you are that wealthy foundation that says, we're here for the longer term, we want to see a city transformed. Yep. Well, that's the kind of investor that we could actually put these buildings into a structure that those investors could hold longer term. They will increase in value like the piece of art. Okay. Right, right. They are expensive to maintain and they're not going to perform the way a commercial property would or a residential property because we want those AA groups, we want those scout groups. They're not going to be bringing in a lot of revenue. And remember, we went back and we said, hold on, if you have no scout groups, guess how many disconnected, disenfranchised young people you have going around in the streets, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. by the way, let's just remember in America, all of the real bad guys who shoot people in school shootings and that kind of stuff, they are these are not jihadis, mm -hmm. okay, largely. These are normal 
American. And by the way, we, have, we actually have this kind of same kind of thing in Canada. Yeah. We have normal, young Canadian, young American people who've had all the same kind of general upbringing and they go crazy mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. cause enormous disruption. So if we go back and we say, we're actually helping that issue, yeah. this building, we can allow this. And that's that's where I get super excited to see these people. Do you know what, Grant? Honestly, some of these people, they, they don't know where to put their money. They have so much money. I know. They're not, they actually don't know where to put it. They don't. And, and I think the point <laughs> that, well, and I think it's just, it's changing the mindset of what to do with it and the outcome of what you're, what you do with your money. For instance, like you said, you're going to hire somebody and go hire a fund manager and Hey, a success is a 10% return. It's such an elementary way, I think, to look at things. Okay. But that's, that it's a 10% return on your money, but what is the return on how that money was made? Like, we don't know what those investments are. Did you look at what you were invested in? <laughs> like, did that cause harm to a community based if it was, uh, you know, it was liquor companies or it was, uh, you know, firearm companies? Like, these companies have great returns, right? Because a lot of people buy guns and liquor or whatever, right? But it also destroys neighborhoods. So your 10% return, that's great on paper, but what's the societal return? Whereas I like people who think much more in creative about what return is. It's not just a percentage, a byline at the bottom of a report at the end of a year. If it's, hey, we got three, 4% return of our money, but this crime rate in this community is down 15% because of what's happening that you can't. And now, now those people grow up to get jobs, put more tax revenue into the community because they go on to do things. The thinking about returns in that way, I think is how we have to talk to wealthy individuals about money cannot be money or, you know, giving back in the traditional way. I think we have to be creative about giving back, innovate the way innovate the way we look at the way we solve problems, right? I mean, Absolutely. And I think we're, we're at a point where we're able to do that with all the instruments we can, we can do now. Can, can, I, can I just give you a couple other categories for yeah. listeners to kind of think of here, right? Because we've got, pe- people might look at this and say, okay, when you say crime went down by 15% in a, in a neighborhood, you look at that and think, who should be buying that? Who mm-hmm. should be buying a reduction in crime? Mm-hmm. Well, we naturally look to government, right? We, we think government should be that's it sounds like a government thing so maybe government pays for it or government incentivizes it the problem is and people use words like you know the swamp right let's drain the swamp or whatever yeah you know i have to say if you're a if you're an entrepreneur and you approach any government in the western world you're probably going to feel it's swamp like because they operate in such different ways like you know i'll tell you as a social entrepreneur the number of times where i'm engaged with government i'm saying hey did you have you do you know what's happening with the other person in the department right next to you right. did you know what project they're working on they're like no i didn't know that like because because you you people are in the same building right you know that because <laughs> we we know what you're both doing but you don't right yeah well that's swamp like because it's like you're in this muck okay government systems and i think go, i think government systems ha- are more responsible than government people are not good at breaking down silos i think yep. we could agree i think a lot of people would agree that okay yeah social entrepreneurs and conventional entrepreneurs are good at pushing past those kinds of areas and seeing through the kind of systemic change. But now let me give you two other buckets, sure, okay? Sure. When we talk about social impact, so maybe some of your listeners will be familiar with the phrase ESG, okay? Environment, social, yeah. and governance-related impact. These are the categories heading towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. For environmental impact, we have measures, right? We have re- reduction of greenhouse gases, reduction of carbon footprint. For governance stuff, 
we have standards. We have, you know, don't steal stuff, no prostitutes, don't say things to, no, no segregation based on, like there's these standards that are coming up, which are pr pretty darn obvious to a lot of people, of but, but social impact has no measure. Mm -hmm. Social impact has no standard measurement metrics. And we have been, as the Trinity Centers Foundation, we've been to visit the rating agencies. We've been to the accounting <laughs> standards groups. We've been asking, where are these standards? And they do not yet exist. And here's where I give you two final categories. One is we, we generally think of social issues as issues that you grant towards, okay? Somebody mm -hmm. says, yeah. I want to deal with this social issue. I want to hire the following 10 people. And those 10 people who are going to underpay, by the way they're gonna go and do some change. Okay, well, right away after year one, we lose half of the 10 people because we underpaid them and they, they got another job somewhere else. So there's another issue, right? We've got to pay these people better that are doing really, really hard stuff. I mean, look at the, look at the medical people during COVID. I mean, it's mm -hmm. un unbelievable yeah, what they've unbelievable. been doing, unbelievable. right? But here's a second area is actual investment. Where you, you say, I will let you use my capital for a certain period of time with the following expectations of growth. Well, the only way you can do lending or investment that's secured is where you bring in some kind of other piece of property or mm. equity that's leaned against. And this is where within the social sector, what we call the social sector, the biggest holding of real assets are the faith communities mm. and their properties, which is why I think that the impact investors should get very excited about the potential of faith properties because they can be used as leverage or collateral within investment programs. Mm. And that's where you go from that. Instead of that four or 5%, gotcha. the four or 5% is what was granted, but the 96% is what's invested. And we've only begun to touch the 96%. It's really, really interesting. When we talk about like, you mentioned earlier about the, the New York one, you know, brings in a million dollars in revenue. Is that from... Is that from rent paid by the organizations who use it as a co-working space? Events that are held there every year, like what's yep. the sort of That's diversification right. of it's revenue? It's all of the, yeah, it's all of the above. And I should just do a little disclaimer to say that I know that the revenues at Judson have gone down during COVID. And by the of, way, I'm rounding course. up of to course. a million. Sure, I think sure, it's sure. probably yeah, a little yeah, bit less, but to, you yeah. have to go on their annual report sure, to check sure, all sure. that stuff. But but where the really easy math? We're here to do easy math, math okay? We're yeah, let's do easy math, right? <laughs> yeah, you could just say I was talking Canadian dollars or pesos or something. But <laughs> um, but, um, but what the best revenue are those where you have solid charities and nonprofits that have other granting streams that support their programs, and they are long-term renters. So instead of having one funding stream, which is dependent right. on one round of grant application, sure. you have multiple tenants and they're all contributing to, to that kind of mixity of, uh, but it's all the revenue streams you just mentioned. But, and it doesn't have to be, it could be, for instance, you could have a, a church in you know, New Orleans, you know, does this thing, but says, Hey, we want to be, we want to attract, you know, tech innovation and we're going to use this, you know, church to bring startups in. Right. And have that yes. sort of be the lifeblood of what this particular church is, is, you know, the, yes. the, the and that doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter what is within. There's no restrictions on what can go in, I guess, the, the real estate. Yeah. Or? So let's dive over to there are restrictions. And and the, these are generally known within the urban planning language as land use parameters. Okay, mm -hmm. So this is zoning. So you could have zoning, yeah. which is institutional zoning, which allows a, a religious place of worship. Okay. Yep. In that zoning does not necessarily allow you to run a co-working space for tech companies. Okay. But 
you can go to the municipality and you can say, we'd like to run a tech space for uh, a startup tech space here. And we'd like to have it. And this is where you go to your municipal tax question. Okay. okay. So if you want to run a restaurant and you rent a restaurant, you know, retail premises within your rent is going to be baked in the local taxes. Okay. Yep. But if you want to start it up, you might find there's a way of getting a break on a startup on both your rent and the local taxes. And this happens a lot. By the hmm. way. This is going to be a big, this could be a whole nother podcast, right? Of, of just looking at municipal taxes. And I'll tell you, you know, the number of people who want the haircut that they want or the beard oil or the gym or the cool little salad <laughs> or the, you know, the little things that they, that make up a city main street for them. Mm. Those things are seriously being affected by municipal taxes post COVID. This is going to be a major issue. So when you take a church, which is generally, uh, there's a big generalization, okay. Faith properties, places of worship in North America, and certainly in Europe are generally exempt from local taxes. But once you start adding in these mm-hmm. other activities, I see you saying. become at risk. Okay. But now you got to go back and say, hold on, municipality. Remember, we're fixing up this heritage building or we're helping vulnerable people. So why don't you just keep our tax break in place? And this is where you really have to be careful of those silos in the municipality and in the province and state governance, because that issue is a big one for us to work on. It's not clear right now. A lot of churches get burned on this, actually. Your organization sort of comes in. Again, is the, does the church still, the church, do the church bring like, you guys in and say, hey, here's our issue. How can we rectify it through your innovative like approach? Is that yeah. is that how it sort of works? <laughs> I'll tell you how it works. So we we have our our we know very clearly who our core audience profile is, okay? Our core decision maker that engages the Trinity Centers Foundation in a faith property. And we're 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 a fairly new foundation. We have about 50 volunteers who are architects, urban planners, wow. social finance people. They're, they're, awesome. they're awesome people who want to see this happen. Okay. And then some of those become actual paid project consultants. Sure. And we do projects for churches that are trying to make this kind of thing happen. So the guy who calls us, okay, is called Jeff. Of course, he can be called other names, but sure. in our profiling, we call him Jeff. Jeff generally doesn't, he, he's not so sure about where he's at in his faith, but his mother and his grandmother roped him into sitting on the board of the church. That they had ah, okay. Okay. And now, and now the grandmother dies. Gotcha. Even the mother dies. And poor Jeff is still left on the board of this church. He's like, how the hell did I get here? Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. And then he realizes he's actually in charge of the church board. And he looks <laughs> around and he's like, what the hell has been going on around here? This, this, this charity that I'm now running, it owns what kind of building? And we've spent how much on up keeping it up? Wow. Nothing. He looks around, he's like, I think everybody who's been involved in this thing for the past 25 years should definitely be fired. (laughs) And and I think maybe I should even be suing some of them. Like this is a mismanagement. Negligence. And who's been overseeing them? So poor Jeff is like, he's like, if this was my business, I I would be, you know, I would be raining down hellfire on this thing. This is not a good situation. So he calls 1-800, my church is in trouble, (laughs) you know, .ca kind of thing. And basically one of those 50 people on our board is usually you will usually catch one of those people when he raises his hand and says, gotcha. I need help. Gotcha. So those, and by the way, Jeff's are, if, if there's a Jeff listening today, <laughs> we you are you. not alone. <laughs> and that's who usually calls us. So it's different from the pastor calling it. Cause if the pastor calls us, the mm. pastor will usually say, I want to do things the same as they've been done before. And, and to see a radical difference, which right. of course is the definition of insanity. Or I, I want more people to come and listen to my sermons on Sunday, or I just want to pay the bill. Those are all things that are important, but they're not what we're working. We're working on 
how could our client for the foundation, our client is the future, the future of a city, the future of that heritage place. And, uh, and basically from there, that church needs to do a whole suite of things. So they have to look at the urban plan. They have to look at the condition of the building, the architectural possibilities, the costings of what that is, the potential users. Now go back to the architectural plan, rethink it, go back, bring these other organizations and find out what funding streams they may have and create a coalition of people who might want to take over that building. And now keep going back to those same stakeholders, funders, municipalities, all of those people. And instead of us doing that, we are trying to train them. And I'm not talking like they take a video course and they go and do it. I'm talking yeah. hand-holding to help them go back and say, this building could have a radically different future for our community. And then the, the church still keeps some ownership of it. And then you just have more owners, like the church still maintains certain equity of the of the property. Yeah. And then there's more ownership that comes in to help with the revitalization of it. That is a huge question. Okay. So in general, we are working towards community ownership of these buildings, meaning wow. secular ownership, not sacred ownership. So we're looking for a new community cooperative or a new nonprofit holding entity that would acquire the site. Mm. And the original faith community might become part of that right. ownership group. Right. That's the signal to the impact finance folks to say there really is like, you know, you know, when you go to a, a store and it says, new, you know, under new management. Yeah. Okay, that that brings in a whole new wave of people because they're like, hold on, I know this place, but under new management, that's exciting. That brings a whole host of new things. And by the way, I don't think church leaders understand how much the average leader in a community doesn't want to be part of their faith community simply because they've watched so many years of poor management. Mm, yeah, I don't think, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, sure. I, I'm, I'm not coming. It's like, I didn't decide to not come to your church because I don't believe Jesus is God or I don't believe. Right. I'm not coming because I don't think you guys are good at anything. And it's a true impact problem. It's a, it's a segregation problem. It's, it's, a, it's a political hot potato problem. You know, faith communities are in a, in a difficult time right now. And, and just in case somebody's listening from another part of the world, they're thinking, well, uh, this guy sounds like he doesn't understand my context. You know, in Montreal, where I live, the church, you know, it's a very deeply secularized culture. Mm -hmm. But I once, I once, so I have a lot of friends in some very conservative churches around North America. I once got to, to present to actually the largest Protestant denomination in North America. I got to present to their headquarters about this issue. And I once, I said, look, guys, maybe if you're in Dallas, Texas, maybe this doesn't make as much sense. And, and the guys from Dallas, Texas came to me afterwards and said, Graham, please don't talk that way about Dallas ever again. <laughs> I said, we are facing exactly the same issues as you are in Montreal. Wow. Right. Actually, urban America, now there's an urban rural thing, sure. which is major, but in urban settings, urban people are very sensitive to these kinds of issues and they want to see this change. I want to end on a couple of things. First would be, I want to go back to a little bit of the community response, maybe, and sort of there. Yeah. You know, you go around and you talk to people in the community. What is their, what has been their response to this? And what has the, the church family or, or church group or constituents there? What, what has their response been like? And I mean, there's been, I think there's, there's probably been what a dozen projects or so now that's kind of went through this revolution that's a right. little bit. So what's kind of had the response been from just, you know, that small, you know, that small case study of, of, of ones, what, what has it been like to, to hear, to hear back? So thanks for that question. I think the overwhelming response has been, that's awesome. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. You want to take an old church, turn it into a community hub? 
amazing. We're right. with you. Let's do it. And then immediately afterwards comes flooding after them. You're like, hold on. Yeah. Where do you start on this? This has a lot of different, where are you starting? Does the church get to stay there? Who's right. going to pay for right. it? What right. about the taxes? What a, right. And, and then our next move is to say, rather than try to boil the ocean here, let us work on projects where people are, their state of readiness is high enough. Mm. So usually we'll say to a church, have you ever considered selling your building? And they mm -hmm. say, no, we would never consider selling. We say, that's fine. You keep going. Let us know how you do. Right. The ones we're used to, we're ready to work. They're like, are you kidding me? We're ready to sell our, we're ready to give our building for a dollar <laughs> to, you know, as long as the person we sold it to for dollars and turn around and sell it for 10 million, you know, because right. they found out something that we did and that's something we can protect against. But nice. they would then want to know what is the first step, second step, third step, fourth step, and actually walking them through it. And, and our hope and our prayer is that, as people see these case studies, and we're not the only ones creating them. There, there's an mm -hmm. amazing group, you know, there are others around the world and we're connected with a lot of those different groups. And I would say anybody who can take a historical faith property in the center of a, of a city and turn it into a place where people expect invitation and mm -hmm. acceptance and, and, and being excited about what they are doing to change the world is deeply in line with the foundation stone of that building that will have said something like, you know, the glory of God is a human being fully alive, to quote St. Irenaeus, right? <laughs> Where somebody is coming alive and that anytime we can use that place, we see it's like the living stones of a city stirred up and in people's bones, mm. they start saying, we, we can do this. Out of these ruins can come amazing beauty. And that's, that's our dream and our prayer. That's our disruption. Yeah, sure. And, uh, sure. It's been such a joy to, to share some of that with you today. Greg. What is, to play devil's advocate, right? What are, what are those conversations like? Because not everybody's going to say, this is great, right? This is wonderful. Let's do it. You know, like you said, there's so many layers to this. The approvals that it has to go through from whether it's a city level or a church level or community level, whatever it may be, right? What are some of the devil advocate sort of uh, mm. response to it? The main response of that kind is not Graham or Trinity Center. You guys are crazy. This is a bad idea in general. We, we never hear that. Okay. No, nobody says that. What you can say is you're crazy mm. and you should just demolish all those buildings. And that immediately starts a second question. Like, well, hold on a minute. That sounds like a bad, that sounds like a bad answer, right? Yeah, We've got yeah. all this wealth in the Western world. Are we seriously just going to destroy these buildings because we couldn't think hard enough about it? Right. Okay. So let's come back from that. The main answer against what we're doing is numbness, a numbness. And I'm actually writing a, I'm actually writing a novel about this, about the way this numbness infiltrates cities, right? Where the, the urban planner says, I know this is right, but mm. it's screwing up my system. And I can't think about it. The, mm. the, the, the Bobby Turner says, I know this is right. There is not a big financial upside on these projects, but there's a massive social impact side. So now those guys, they go a little bit numb as they think about it. Mm -hmm. And those guys are my favorite guys because they're used to frying their brain with crazy ideas and then moving forward, right? Yep. The church leaders, they say, but hold on, we, we're going bankrupt. We were kind of hoping to sell that building for like more sure. than what you're saying sure. and, and bailing ourselves out. And we say, hey guys, that was never what those buildings were given for, was it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the bishop mm -hmm. says, you're, you're, of course you're right. Right? So they go a little bit numb and they are starting to move forward out of yeah. that. So it's the numbness. And, and that's where I think, you know, you get into, honestly, I think we're all going to have to get better at post-traumatic stress 
and shock and, you know, languishing, we've heard in the New York Times recently, right, of people who they get it and forcing them out of that numbness. And that goes back to that having an argument with people and they, and you still come out of it loving yep. each other. Yep. That is even harder these days. And especially with these kind of complex issues where the numbness hits, I think what we've been finding is let the numbness hit and then back away for a little bit. Let them think about it as their local community. And when they come back, now we're kind of ready to go. And, and boy, I think people who people of privilege, people who can sit down and have time in a day mm-hmm. to talk on a podcast, we need to help those who have influence, who are dealing with their numbness of the complexity of these social issues. We need to draw them out into action. It all comes back to ideas and creativity for me, because I think as you talk to that bishop, he he's not, he doesn't have, he doesn't, you know, he's focused on different things where he can't envision what you can envision, right? Or the team can envision of like, yeah, you want to sell to get out of debt, but like, what about this idea, <laughs> right? Like you, where you keep it, right? And, and keep, you know, part of it or, or most of it, whatever it may be. But then also it does this, right? For, for the community. Yes. There's so much, like it can actually be the purpose it was intended to, right? Instead of losing it, right? You can, you can rebuild it in much more of a, a modern way where you can, you know, help actually, if, if you're there to, to, to do God's work, quote unquote, right? And help people. Well, this could actually maximize more people help because it includes much more people, I think, in my opinion. I, I agree. I agree with you. I resonate with what you said on there. I think that, and I have a lot of friends who are bishops and I, I'm in the, I'm in the age and stage of life where that's this kind of, that's the kind of the way I rule. <laughs> <laughs> Being an ordained pastor for you know 15, 20 years, it's kind of if I could be a if I could be a if I could be a bug a bug on the wall of the bishop meeting, man. That that would be a, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I'm the I'm the I'm the bug that gets smashed on the wall of a lot of bishops <laughs> meetings because <laughs> you're just throwing these crazy ideas, right? Like, let's do this. Yeah. Let's do and this. I, I don't mind, you know. I don't. That's actually how I started this journey: is going around to the bishops and saying, "Hey, bishop, how?" you doing what do you have a plan on this and what is the plan and and often it was them closing the door behind said, come in Graham please let's talk because I'm scared I don't know which way to go I don't know how this is going to go and this is where looking back at the history of the church and we, we could talk about the Jewish faith Muslim faith Hindu faith. I mean I, I, what right now I've been focusing on Christian churches but some of the most inspired architects and composers of music and artists mm. these are the people who were at the heart of the church and they, they had an environment of faith where they were given so, that place. So right. This is the time, right? Who, who has that kind of faith right now? And church leaders want to say, well, we have faith because we read the Bible and we, you know, mm-hmm. we sing the right songs and we, we have faith. And I want to say, go and talk to Elon Musk. That guy's got faith, okay? He's got faith. He's got, he had a vision of you know, thousands of satellites giving high-speed internet to the craziest faraway places, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you get an electric vehicle and it takes you where you need to go. You don't need to drive yourself. I'm not making a statement about either, sure. you know, Starlink satellites or, or, or where he's going with the cars. <laughs> I, I'm kind of interested in both, but you got to say something. The guy's got faith. Yeah. The yeah. guy's got faith. He's got a vision. Yep. And that's the kind of faith we need social entrepreneurs to have mm-hmm. these days. And I think now's the time. Now's the time. Well, thank you so much, my man. This was uh, this was fascinating. The most privilege I have in this world is to get to talk to passionate people, man. You know, every day is uh, it's it's a pretty great thing and invigorates me and inspires me. So I appreciate your time and 
I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to inspire me and, and, and talk to people about just new creative ideas. And I think we're at such a disruptive moment with, with everything going on within innovation, within you know real estate, even just to keep it within this sector. But I think the next five years is going to be really, really insane with creativity. And that's what, that's what makes me really, really excited and optimistic. So best of luck to you and the team for, for the rest of this year and the next decades to come, my man. Grant, thank you so much.